God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I'm excited to open up God's word with all of you today. If you can, uh, would you grab your Bibles and meet me in the book of Amos? The book of Amos. It is in the Old Testament. That's the first half of the Bible. Towards the end of the Old Testament, the book of Amos. In Charleston, South Carolina, there is a home located on 133rd uh, Cannon Street. It is a historic home that has gone into ruin and disrepair. You see, the different architectural codes in Charleston have made it very difficult for the homeowner to do the necessary repairs needed to get this place back in order. But it's been neglected for so long, there are actually wooden support beams needed to keep it upright. As I said, it's been boarded up eaten up by termites, and it's a complete eyesore in a neighborhood where people are trying to have it turn around. The owner of the building basically has thrown his arms in the air and said, I've got no other option but to wipe it out. The codes are too difficult, the cost is too high, and even if I tried to sell it, who would want to buy it? Though it's a historic home, it's in horrible situation. What do you do when you feel like things in our world are beyond disrepair, beyond repair? You know, as we've been going through this book of Amos, we look at God's people and we say, man, things are pretty bad. And as we look at our world, we could say the same thing, right? Things look pretty bad. It feels, doesn't it, that our world is beyond repair? Doesn't it feel that even our nation in many ways is beyond repair? Society, our schools the educational system, the welfare in our community, the welfare system, disparity in pay. There there are so many crises in our world, and it feels like in America alone, things are beyond repair. What do we do? And in addition to that, the people making the calls and those being affected by the calls are equally broken people. So now you have broken people trying to fix broken systems like this home there in Charleston, South Carolina. What could be done? And let me take it up a notch. What do we do when not only things around us seem to be beyond repair, but when we ourselves feel like we are beyond repair? What what do we do when it feels like there's no option left? There's nothing. And maybe deep down inside, we're like, God, just, I've got no purpose. It's over for me. Well, just before you conclude it's over for you. The book of Amos ends with these words that I'm going to paraphrase. God telling you, telling me, not so fast. When you think things are over, not so fast. When the foundations of your life are in disrepair, not so fast. What you need is a divine developer to take you on. When God's people were in disrepair and things looked bad, God said, hey, Israel, not so fast. Would you join with me in prayer as I open up these final chapters of this book and say, God, would you talk to us? Pray with me. 
Lord, I know that when we get together here at, at the Brook, as a church family, with visitors, with those who are new trying to get connected, Lord, I know that we are all broken people. I know it because your word tells me that. I know it from personal experience of my own heart and in walking with one another. And God, it is not rare for us to feel like it's over. And when we see things so bad, maybe we don't want to say it's over, but we know deep down inside it is, and we begin to live like it. We turn from you. We try to figure things out our own way. And Lord, I pray that we would hear loud and clear today, you screaming to us, not so fast. Lord, I also pray just for revival here in our church family. You continue to push us towards repentance, bring faith where that's needed. We pray also for the same in our churches in this community, people who are about the gospel work that may similarly need just a breath of fresh air from your Holy Spirit. We lift up our brothers and sisters in our community who worship at Belmont Assembly of God, who worship at City Lights Church, Bethany Baptist Church, and Urban Rock at Brickyard, Legacy, and on and on, New Life. God, these are our fellow laborers who love you, and they need you as bad as we need you. And God, may the good news of Jesus be so clear from these pulpits in our hearts. God, we lift up the ailing among us, the broken, the weak, and say, Lord, heal us, meet us here. Holy Spirit, give us the eyes to see you at work and the ears to hear you speak. Be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Amos is a book that has been... uh, It's been hard for me to preach, I'll be honest, man. It is a book that's message is so direct and has a repetitiveness about it that just keeps cutting to the heart. And you're kind of like, God, would you let up for a moment? God's like, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. I got to make it so clear to you the things that are happening in the nation of Israel that angered me so that you can see so clearly the things that happen in our lives and in our world that displease me as well. And so the book of Amos is nine chapters. I told you, chapter five had a glimmer of hope, and it was neat, and it was short. And then at the next half of chapter five, God's like, let justice roll down like the rivers and righteousness like the seas, because you guys are not doing justice. God's like, your worship bothers me, because you come and worship me on one day and do evil the next, and you think I'm okay. God goes on and on, telling them the ways that they are doing things that anger him at the core. And here we come to Amos chapter 8 and 9, and guess what? We see no different. Would you join me in the book of Amos chapter 8? I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And if you can, if you're able to, please, would you stand with me? We'd love for you to take that blue Bible in the chair in front of you if you don't own a Bible. And we want you to take it home. We want it to be the Brooks gift to you because God's word is powerful. He is still talking to us. And we want you to have his word in your hands. If you're having a hard time finding it in the, in the Blue Bibles, we're on what page, family? 769. Amos chapter 8, verse 1 through 7. This is what God's word tells us. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. 
Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Verse 4. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. And then jump over to chapter 9, verse 11. I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 8. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except, can you say except? Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated, family. And you said, I thought there was something good you were going to read. That comes later. We'll get to that. God's word in Amos is coming to a climax. See, throughout the message, God's like, I'm just so upset at oppressing the poor that my people have done. I'm so upset at the way they've trampled on injustice. Look at verse 4 that I just read there. He says, hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. Like God's like, I'm just mad at the way you treat vulnerable people in your country. And you say things like this in verse 5. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? They're basically saying, because they know on a Sabbath day, which was Saturday for the Jewish people, they know that on a Saturday God does not allow them to work. It's the Sabbath. It's the day of rest. And so basically, they're sitting there at Saturday being like, man, I cannot wait for the next day to come. Because on the next day, we get to go back to the marketplace and we begin to sell things again. And for them, that was especially important because look what they do when they sell things. It says in verse 5, they say that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great. The ephah is a way of measuring the things they were selling. It was the scale. So they want to make the scale small, but the shekel, that's the cost, great. Basically, they're like, we cannot wait get, to get back to work because we can't wait to rip people off. We cannot wait to give them a little for a lot, to give them a little bit of, of, of food for a high shekel price. And then it says, and deal bountifully with false balances. Not only that, but like the scales that we saw in the announcement here, We can't wait to make the scales uneven so people think they're getting more than what they're actually getting. Like, we we just cannot wait to be unjust, to make an extra buck, even if it's at the cost of being deceitful. And he goes on in verse 6, that we may buy the poor for silver and needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Look, they sold wheat 
You don't sell the chaff. The chaff are the extra leaves, the part that gets burned up, the part that has no value in terms of eating. And what a good farmer would do is take the grain, throw it in the air, and the wind would come and blow away the chaff. So that was not added in the measurements because that's of no value. And they would take the wheat then and sell the wheat. These people were like, we sell the wheat, but we have some chaff in there to add a little extra weight. So they're getting less for their money. This is ingenuity right here. They were creative in their evil. But as we've seen throughout the book of Amos, this has been their modus operandi, their mode of operation, what they know how to do. They've become experts in deceitfulness. They, they have become professionals in injustice. We saw that the people, even in the surrounding nations, were wicked peoples, and the people of Israel were no different. The wicked nations around them, if you remember in chapter 1, they would cut open pregnant women to kill their babies. They did not value life in the womb. And the people of God didn't do much different. We're told in chapter 2 that, they, that, that the father and his son would take the same woman for sexual relations. There was a kind of human trafficking that took place among God's people. See, when God is for those who bears image, they were for dehumanizing those same people. See, when God was for speaking up against injustice, they were for turning a blind eye because that was not their problem. See, when God says, I want you to be empathetic, to weep with those who weep, they're like, God, we have no compassion. You see, for them, their religion was something they just did on a particular day, but their faith did not have legs to it. See, God was like, look, I am for those who trust me, but you are trusting in your riches, in your materialism. You boast in the things you've acquired, but you've acquired it at the expense of your laborers who you've cheated. You don't give the right wages, and yet you're benefiting from their work. God's like, I'm for fairness in society, but you overtax the poor. I value truth and justice, but you, tr- you took pride in how you poisoned the court system. Ultimately, God says, you operate out of pride. And honesty is long gone. You see, Amos' message is like, look, Israel, you're in trouble. You are in big trouble. God has seen your evil, and he's going to do something about it. And some might think, like, look, Amos, you're over-exaggerating. In fact, we saw there was a guy named Amaziah. He was like, don't say these things, Amos. Go back where you came from. We don't want to hear that message here in this land. You're, you're, you're taking things out of control. You're taking things out of line. You're, you're exaggerating. You've heard the end of the world predictions, those who make a big deal about nothing, right? The world should have ended probably a thousand times this year alone, according to many. Sometimes we feel that way with meteorologists, don't we? Like when the snowpocalypse is about to hit and we get flurries, Right? And so, like, look, they're exaggerating. They're trying to make a point. They want you to be, be safe because they know if they downplay it, they themselves can get in trouble. They want to keep people safe, right? Amos, that's what you're doing. You're just making a big deal. You're just trying to let people know, hey, stop, stop doing that. You know, put a little slap on the wrist. And just before we think Amos is just being a little extreme, trying to steal headlines, let's keep in mind the things that God showed Amos. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. God gave him a vision, he says. A basket of summer fruit. Now, a basket of fruit is actually a great thing. 
Because what it means is the harvest has come. They've picked the fruit from the trees. You put them in a basket and now you get to eat it. That's a great image, except when it's applied to God's judgment. Because what God is basically saying, look, Amos, the time is ripe for me to come and visit my people. And then look what God shows Amos in verse 2. He says, the end has come upon my people. I will never again pass by them in their current state, basically. And then Amos says in verse 3, look at that. So many dead bodies. You see that? They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Amos is not just a guy who's standing up being extreme. God had given him a vision of what was going to take place in the year 722 B.C. when Assyria comes from the north to conquer Israel. And Amos sees this, and he's just overwhelmed. So many dead bodies. They're just thrown everywhere. And there's just silence, that, that eerie silence in Israel. See, Amos isn't trying to steal headlines. He actually saw what God would do if his people didn't turn. And he is there preaching with an urgency. He is torn in his heart. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. He sees God. He sees another vision of God standing by the altar saying, strike the capital until the thresholds shake. He's seeing God executing the judgment that God's people deserved. And for those who try to hide, look at chapter 9, verse 2. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, what's God going to do? From there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Basically, God's like, there is nowhere to run from my judgment, Israel. You've got nowhere else to go. As I was reading this, I was thinking of Psalm 139, that beautiful psalm that says, where should I go from your presence, Lord? If I go to the heights of heavens, you are there. Even then you shall lead me. That's a great psalm if God's not mad at you. But here are the people of Israel, that same truth. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. He's omnioptic. He sees everywhere. And for those who are evil... That means God's going to find you, though you try to hide. And praise God for the other side, for those who are the oppressed or his children. He'll always find you for comfort and compassion. But in time of judgment, his omnipresence is a scary thing. Not only did Amos see this destruction coming on God's people, but in chapter 8, verse 11, he saw something that is just as alarming to him. He saw a famine of God's voice. Look, verse 11, chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Just imagine that. People wandering about saying, God, would you tell us something? And it's crickets. Amos is speaking as one who is just broken at what he knows is coming. I say all this to remind us, family, that we're terribly mistaken if we think we are better off than Israel. If we, as a nation, or even in our world, don't deserve the same kind of judgment Israel had coming for them. We're we're terribly mistaken if we think this is an exaggeration of terms. You see, God is still against evil and injustice and wickedness and hypocrisy 
God's against it. And we need to understand his love for truth and his hatred for injustice. We have to feel it. There's been a lot of bad news up to this point in the book of Amos. And Amos is not concerned about easing anybody's conscience. He is not concerned about giving anybody a massage who's been burdening someone else. But what we learn here is that discomfort is a tool in God's sanctifying arsenal. I don't think you heard me here because I heard one, mm, okay? (laughs) Discomfort is a tool in God's sanctifying arsenal. God will make us uh, uncomfortable by giving us the truth so that that discomfort pushes us to him. It begins to purify us because we say, God, I'm seeing things in my heart I don't want to see. I need you. God, I'm seeing things in our city that make me really in pain. We need you. God, we're seeing things in our nation that grieve me to the core. God, we need you. It has a sanctifying effect, but there's got to be some level of discomfort. And the people of Israel are very uncomfortable. They're squeamish hearing this. And so this is what Amos has done. He's not just told them that God is mad at sin or doesn't like sin. He's been very specific about the kinds of things they're doing. I think in our own hearts, in our own prayer life, we would be wise to just not simply say, God, forgive me for my sins. But to search it out and say, God, what am I doing in my heart? What what are the things in my life? What are the things in our city? What are the things in our nation that we need to repent of specifically? And just as God was specific in his exposing of their evil, he's also specific in the sending of judgment and what it's going to look like. Like they know people from the north are going to come and take them away with fish hooks, piercing their nose and their ear and, and yank them out of Israel and into exile. God's specific. God is particular. And just as he's specific with sins and consequences, as crazy as it is, He's also specific with hope. You know, as I've read this book and studied it the past four weeks, I'm just kind of like, God, why would you ever offer us anything other than judgment? And just when Israel might have thought it was all over, what does God say? But not so fast. Not so fast. You see, in chapter 9, verse 8, God's like, I'm going to destroy my people here except that I will not utterly destroy it. So it's not like God's like, I'm going to pass over, you know what, I'm going to sweep it under the rug, pretend like nothing happened. Let's start from scratch. No, God's like, I'm still coming to bring judgment, but I'm not going to utterly destroy my people. Now the question is, why not, God? Why, Why not just demolish the building and start over with someone else? I mean, that's the way it looks like he should do. Why not just start from scratch? And maybe you feel the same way. God, I have turned from you so many times. Are you done with me yet? Well, why not just leave me alone, God, and go to someone else who's going to be worth your time because, God, I've truly failed. Why does God not just say, it's done, I'm gone, peace? Because God has made promises he will always keep. Yeah. 
See, God's promises, yes, he makes conditional promises, but there are some promises he has made that are under one condition, and that's the condition of his character. And if he is a God who doesn't lie, he will fulfill his promise. That's good news for the most wicked of people. And that's good news for the most broken of people. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, though things are pretty bad here, I'm going to sift out my people in verse 10. But in verse 11, I'm going to do something new in that day. See, you see the words in that day. That's a signal of something that's going to take place in the future. And there is a unique change of direction that's taking place here from a prophetic standpoint. He says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Why? That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, says God, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. Verse 14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Why? Because I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. This declares the Lord your God. That's not what we expected here. In fact, Amos's words are so contrary to everything, there have been some people, some scholars, who really tend to be overly critical, who think these words are not original to Amos. Someone later down the road added these words to the end of Amos because it was such a dark book. But if you read all of the Old Testament prophets... They always have this thread of hope woven into it. And Amos just so happens to drop it all right there at the end. Now let's hear what the hope is. What did these words mean to the people of Israel? He says, God says, on that day I will raise up the booth of David. The booth is like his tent, his dynasty. See, the king of Israel is about to get conquered. The southern kingdom of Judah will get conquered over 100 years later. The throne of David will come to an end. And here God says, I will rebuild it. I will rebuild it because I'm a promise-keeping God. Not only that, he will bring in the nations, verse 12. The nation of Edom and other nations. Because in the time of David, there was militaristic victory. There was peace in the land that was established. And now God is telling them that's coming. And they're excited about it. And God says, I will plant you back in the land in verse 15. I'm going to bring you back there. He tells them in verses 13 and 14, in fact, there's going to be such abundance of food in the land, the people are still going to be plucking the grapes when it's time to start planting the new ones. Like, like there's going to be such abundance, it's going to be dripping from the mountains. God's people here have hope. But notice this. What have they done to deserve this hope? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why has God done this? Because at the character of our God, at the very core of who he is, 
He is merciful and gracious. Mercy is to withhold what is deserved, and that was judgment. Grace is to give what's not deserved, and that's hope. God has given both mercy and he's given grace because he is a God who is merciful and gracious, not because his people deserved it. Now look at here. There's more to be said here. Because the words for Israel that gave them hope today give us also hope. You see, that promise to restore and rebuild the household of David doesn't just shout loudly in the ears of God's people then, but it does so for us now. Because the reason God's like, I'm going to restore David's house is because he gave David a promise. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, I'm going to put someone on your throne who will reign as a king forever. And no doubt the people of Israel began to think when the invaders came to destroy their land, God, what happened to the promise? What happened to forever? And God tells them here, I'm not done, not so fast. I'm going to put someone on that throne. And yes, everyone after David, those are a lot of wicked people. But I'm going to put someone on that throne who's going to reign in righteousness. I'm going to rebuild that dynasty, and there's going to be one who will not just reign in righteousness, but will reign for eternity as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. There is hope in these words. And not only about these nations are they going to be overcome militaristically, but God's like, the one who reigns as king is going to bring in Edom and all the nations to follow me. People who are non-Jewish, he's going to bring in Gentiles. In fact, this very passage is quoted in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council when the question was, what does someone who's not Jewish need to do to become part of God's family? And the decision based on Amos 9 here was basically this. They need to put their faith in Jesus, live for him, because God promised to bring in people who weren't Jewish. If you're not Jewish today, this verse is for you. There is a king who is coming who will bring in the nations and bring in an abundance. And why will this happen? Because God says it will happen. Notice who is the actor behind all these verbs. I will raise up the tent. He says this, I will restore the fortunes. I will plant them on their land. God will do it because he said he'll do it, family. See, what's happening here in Amos is a hope that points straight to Jesus. Yes, there's a time when Israel goes back into the land after exile, but they don't see the mountains dripping with wine. There's a time even now where the people of Israel are back in the land of Israel, but there's no righteous king on the throne there in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. See, there's still a hope of yet a future kingdom where the great king of kings, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, will return. The Bible tells us he will part the sky. He will establish his kingdom on earth. And from that point forward, he will usher us into eternity. And he will reign. He will plant us in the land of heaven. And from that land, we shall never be plucked. Based on God's faithfulness to all who put their faith in Jesus. You see, what God does here to Israel, he says he begins to sift them. And those who are wicked get blown away like the chaff. 
and those who put their faith in him will be brought in. The same is true. God is doing a sifting. Where do you stand with God today, fam? You see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, he took the judgment you deserve. This punishment that came to Israel that we all deserve eternally, separated from God in hell. Jesus took that punishment for you, and it's applied to you only through faith in him. You don't become grafted into God's family just because you show up at a church gathering or because you had a family member who loves Jesus. It's a decision individually you must take. We say, God, I know I've sinned against you. I'm turning from my wicked ways, and I put my faith in Jesus, who died for me and conquered death for me. That's faith in Jesus. And when you do that, you become part of God's family. You are adopted as his daughter, as his son. You are forgiven, and he plants you into the land of heaven. And that identity is yours and secure based on what God has promised and not because of what you've done. We pray that today you would put your faith in Jesus. Family, our status is one who's planted in our eternal home. But in the meantime, we are sojourning in this current one. And this message is one that God has entrusted his church, those who are Christians, followers of Jesus. He's entrusted to us to get it out to our world. Will you do that? There are words of hope here as Amos concludes. God will rebuild. I mentioned his home on 133. Channel Street in Charleston, South Carolina. This owner realized, man, this house was pretty dilapidated, beyond repair. And basically what he did, he put in a city request to demolish the house and build something new there. But the city officials, because it's a historic site, wouldn't let him do it. And so basically he's like, well, I've got no other option. I'm going to put this thing up for sale. Another developer came along and purchased this termite-eaten, destroyed home for $560,000. A place that was uninhabitable. Because this developer saw in this building a vision. And what he began to do with the city was create a plan to build a new home there with an additional home and business to bring in people to this place. He determined that this place that appeared to be beyond repair was still worth salvaging. I don't know if you hear me right now, family. When God speaks to his people Israel and when he looks at us today, though we might feel ourselves to be in Israel's shoes beyond repair, and when it might seem like there is nothing left for us, when it might seem like everything ahead is going to be too hard or the cost is going to be too high or no one's going to want anything to do with us, God is that divine developer who sees you in your rut, who saw Israel in its rut and said, I still see value here. Who would pay $560,000 for a property that's not livable? Who would pay the price of his one and only son for a person who rebelled against him? Who would see value in his own enemy? Enough so to say, I'm going to come for you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die for you so I can save you and make you my own. Who would do that, family? Who would do that but our God? And get this. Just as this developer added space for other people, 
Our God says, look, my kingdom is not just for the nation of Israel. It's not just for those who are my chosen people, but I've made room for others, for Gentiles from all around the world to come into my family. They've got value and worth, and my name is on the line because I made a promise, God said. I made a promise to Abraham, not only that his, his descendants will be as the stars, but also that through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God, I'm keeping that promise. I'm keeping the promise that that was given to Jacob and to Isaac before him. I'm keeping my promise that was passed on to David when I anointed him as king and told him that one of his descendants will reign on the throne. I'm keeping my promise. And so Jesus is the king, and the promise-keeping God has brought people into his kingdom. Family, if God could forgive Israel, surely he could forgive you. The God who would rebuild the throne can rebuild your home. The God who would repair the breaches can repair your heart, your friendships, your marriage. God can do it, family. The God who raised up ruins can raise up your story, can raise up your testimony, and can raise up your legacy. And you can declare, I was far off. I was lost. I was ready to be demolished. The foundations of my life were in disrepair until I met the divine developer. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the King of David. And the word that echoed in chapter 5 still echoes today. Seek me and live. Return to me. Return to me. I don't know what God has been doing in your heart these past weeks. But I do know in my heart he's been revealing a lot of things. Maybe he's showing you the ways that you have drifted from him. Maybe the ways that you've turned a blind eye toward injustice and kind of said, that's not my problem. Maybe that you have been a contributor to injustice in some form or just apathetic toward it. Maybe you've been sucker punched by the old self and given into it because you feel like there's nothing left. Family, God is telling you today, not so fast. Return to me. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to have our worship team come on up here and our prayer counselors. I I want us to, to, to pause here, family. God wants you to return to him. It just doesn't happen by accident. You don't seek God by coincidence. It is a willful, decisive choice you must make. See, what's so sad about the book of Amos is that Israel never repents. They heard the message loud and clear, and they just chose to not pay attention. You see, anybody can hear a message. But what God wants us to do is to respond to his message. Israel just didn't respond. And those bodies thrown into streets happened in the northern kingdom and then in the southern kingdom. Family, just don't let time go by 
whatever you're battling with. You don't need to have it all together to come to Jesus. For that, none of us would be here. You, you don't need more than taking one step saying, Jesus, I need you. Maybe it's doubt you're battling today, fear, regret, shame. You, you know what it is. Don't just sit here and say, God, I'm going to let it be. It's not so fast. He ain't done with you. But he's calling you to make a choice. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our prayer team. They're eager to pray with you. So we sing this song. Family, don't let today pass by without responding to a God whose grace just makes no sense. But I thank him for it. Father in heaven, how you, for eight chapters, can expose so much evil in a land to come to the end and say, but I'm not done with them. How you could do that is beyond my understanding, God. But I say thank you, God, because I know not only have you said that to Israel, but you've said that to us. Lord, I lift up everyone in this room, God, who has drifted in any way. Lord, I pray that we would not take your grace for granted, that we would not trample on your mercy as if it's just always going to be there and it's okay and it's okay if we just grieve you today. But God, I pray that we say, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go on sinning that grace may abound by no means. I'm your child. I want to live for you. So, Lord, I pray that today would be day one for many. God, for any who are here today who've never put their faith in Jesus and they're just seeing how much they need him, I pray that today they would just step forward and say, I want to become part of your family that they would either pray in their seats to put their faith in you, or they'd ask a prayer team member to pray with them to help them understand that. But God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for someone, Lord. And that heaven would throw a party at the bringing in of you into your kingdom, someone today here in this space, Lord. Do the impossible for your glory and for your name alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together and sing this closing song.